This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Adapting Creatures. Rich Rinaldo. Behind the Scenes. And the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. In Cursed Court, an amazing new board game from Atlas Games... You play minor nobles with limited resources. Oh, so limited. You bet your influence and hope that major figures do what you expect each year at court. Major figures like the king, queen, priestess, and assassin... I don't like the sound of that last one. Winner of the Major Fun Award, Father Geek Approved Seal, and the Dice Tower Seal of Excellence. Citadel's designer Bruno Feduti says... He has not been as enthralled by a new game in years and calls it an unexpected masterwork. Geek Dad calls it an excellent bidding and bluffing game. It's easy to learn, plays fairly quickly, and looks great on the table. Check out the amazing art, great gameplay, and up-to-the-minute award list at atlas-games.com slash cursed court. Or see the link in the show notes. Or make haste to your friendly local game store. Before all those other lousy minor courtiers beat you to it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we notice that someone has put little paper wings on our miniature horses to make them into pegasuses. (laughs) And they've um, uh, changed out our dice for D8s, and fortunately, the uh, Doritos remain nacho cheese because some things are sacred, but... I think that may be the gatefold from album two, not album one of Peter Frampton Comes Alive. So we're in an adaptational mood here. Robin, I think it may be down to you. You may have brought that virus into the sterile lands of the gaming hut. Right. Uh, so what I've recently been doing is adapting creatures from uh, previous gumshoe games into uh, quick shock stats so that you can use them in the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, which is still gumshoe, but uh, the uh, faux profiles, as I call them in uh, Yellow King, because uh, game statistics uh, doesn't sound as groovy to me, uh, are uh, quite different. And so uh, I thought we could uh, look at some of the specifics of that and also then move forward into the general uh, task that lies before the designer when you are adapting uh, creatures from one system to another. And even, uh, you know, as mentioned, um, moving between one edition of a game and another uh, can sometimes uh, make all the difference. So, for example, what, one of the things I've been doing is adapting uh, creatures that are near and dear to your undead heart, Ken, because I've been taking creatures from uh, Knight's Black Agents, uh, which are, uh, spoiler alert, mostly vampires, and uh, putting them into the uh, quick shock style faux profiles and lots and lots of bitten cards. Yes, exactly. Um, and so one thing that I noticed while converting both these and the uh, public domain Cthulhu mythos creatures and also the Ezoterrorist creatures is that the creatures that I created for Yellow King do not often have the standard attack types that we associate with creatures. Uh, so I had to invent a bunch of new claw and bite attacks uh, in Quick shock, what matters is the lingering effects of the wounds that you take in a fight that you survive. And so, uh, it's like, I, turns out that, oh, well, I, you know, I had a couple of claw attacks, but once you particularly go through a list of Lovecraftian creatures, those guys are all mostly claw dudes. There's, yeah. there's actually, you know, we, we associate them with the tentacle. But uh, the tentacle is not that common. And in order to bring, you know, up your numbers of tentacle attacks, you have to bring in, like, pikers, like the zoogs and the moon beasts. Yeah. Moon beasts are pretty cool. Uh, they're cool. But, but yeah, they're not uh, they're not anyone's definition of an A-list monster, right. certainly. Uh, but there's lots of there's pinchers and nippers and, and, and lots of claws. So I had to, in creating additional cards for uh, these, I had to create, a you know, a couple more claw attacks for variety. Because you don't want to get the, you know... If you get clawed by a bunch of different monsters over the course of a, a scenario, you don't want to, you know, have them keep giving you the same boring old claw attack. The whole point is that the, 
the cards that you get are supposed to be fun and a, a distinctive part of being horribly mangled. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's no fun if when you're pulling up your, uh, your jeans to show your, your friends there on the boat and you have the exact same bites. That's, that's nothing. It's like, well, yeah, we could have just gone down to the gap and gotten those shark bites. And, uh, likewise, uh, there are vampires in, uh, the Paris setting, uh, and they have their, your classic, uh, attacks that you would expect from a vampire. But if you're suddenly deciding as a GM that you want to do a really super vampire heavy game, again, you're going to want, uh, distinctions between all of the various sorts of vampires. And fortunately, Ken, you already faced, uh, on, on a broad spectrum anyway, the challenge of making all of the various uh, vampires of folklore from around the world, of taking them and making their attacks uh, distinctive. So, uh, uh, for example, one of the tasks there was to come up with a, cascading set of cards that could replicate the effect of being drained by a vampire. And so there's uh, a series of cards. And, and what can happen sometimes uh, with uh, quick shock injury cards is that you discard them, but sometimes you only get to trade them for a card that isn't quite so bad. So there's now sort of a pyramid-stepped thing where there's four or five different drain effects and they all can sort of nest together if you're very unfortunate and uh you know they can nail you a bunch of times over the course of a scenario which is kind of cool right it, it sort of mimics the effect of an ongoing uh fight because that's you know one of the basic ideas of this rule set is that uh, uh you, you don't just take a bunch of abstract hit points and a resource is gone but you feel it just the way you would in a narrative you've been bitten by a vampire you're not going to just get bitten by a vampire and have no further uh, reference to that. Another uh, thing that was really cool about these is that uh, you've already set up the idea of banes. Uh, and so explain how uh, banes and uh, dreads and blocks uh, work in Night's Black Agents. Yeah, for a, for a vampire, uh, each vampire generally has uh, possible entries in banes, dreads, blocks, and compulsions. And compulsions are the pretty standard ones. Usually, you're just compelled to drink blood. And uh, depending, because everything is modular, depending on how strong the compulsion is, a vampire might be, you know, have to make a, a, a an aberrance uh, roll or a, a health roll to avoid drinking blood if they have the opportunity, if they suspect it's a trap or something like that, or it would trap them out in the sunlight, for example. A bane is the thing that will kill a vampire, regardless of how much damage you do to it, or is necessary to kill the vampire after you've killed it all the way down to zero or minus 12 hit points through other methodologies. You might have a vampire that absolutely will take damage from a rocket launcher all day, but unless you stake them in the heart with an ashwood stake, they're not truly dead. And so that's what a bane is, and a bane can, again, deliver double damage. It can deliver normal damage, but that damage can kill, or it can deliver basically no damage, but it has to be present for the kill to work. And Banes uh, obviously come from the whole panoply of vampire folklore and fiction, so it might just be, however you kill a vampire, they're not dead unless you kill them in sunlight, or uh, however you kill a vampire, they're not dead unless you kill them with uh, silver, or it might just be, they take double damage from silver and double damage from fire, but everything else is normal, and so that, you know, kills them down faster than just being uh, machine gun to death if you can in fact machine gun a vampire. So these actually dovetail really well with the way that faux profiles work in Quickshock because uh, after it lists its general challenge level that gives you, depending on what it is that the players are trying to do, they could be trying to run, run away, they could be trying to kill the creature, they could be doing a bunch of things in between those two things, and so there are different uh, difficulty numbers that the players are, are rolling when they make their one fighting roll uh, as in this sort of a quick gestalt combat in order to overcome uh, the creature. Um, and so then for each uh, creature to make them distinctive, uh, there are then a list of difficulty adjustments, uh, situational things that can either make the uh, that number go up or down. And because it's an investigative game, uh, very often uh, knowing more about the creature makes them easier to defeat. Uh, and so that uh, in uh, regular gumshoe, in the Ezoterus, for example, we call that the special means of dispatch. If you know the special way to kill this creature, you get an advantage over it. And the bane, of course, is exactly that. It's a special means of dispatch. Uh, in fact, the only means of, of dispatch, as you point out. Um, and so uh, the uh, Ninth Black Agents creatures have a much bigger block of those 
adjustments in keeping with vampire lore. And so it uh, shows you how much the difficulty number goes up if you're trying to kill or uh, render the vampire helpless and you aren't using the bane. And so in this version, you can defeat the vampire if you don't have the bane, but not kill it. You're just, you know, temporarily, uh, you know, it seems to die, but like Christopher Lee at the beginning of every subsequent Hammer Dracula movie, it comes back. And the uh, you get an additional advantage if you're using one of its blocks to thwart or impede it, and then also you get an additional uh, bonus, uh, which registers as a uh, reduction of the difficulty level if you're uh, distracting the vampire by confronting it with one of its dreads. As I was looking at the descriptions of a lot of the vampires, they also quite often, uh, they have a big list of other powers as well, and often they have mobility powers. And so there was a fourth category that I added of uh, if it is trying to escape and you don't have a way of countering its getaway power. And then the description lists what the getaway power is. So if the vampire has spider climb and uh, you haven't figured out a way to deal with spider climb, it's easier for it to escape. And again, that is part of the way that the uh, creatures work in uh, in uh, vampire war. And uh, since uh, Quickshock, I think, does a uh, better job than a regular gumshoe at handling uh, escapes both of the uh, player characters and of the creatures, uh, it's a great fit as well. I guess we want to back up a bit and talk about uh, how you decide how strong a creature is in your first setting versus your second setting. There's two ways to do that. Uh, one, you can come up with a mathematical formula that translates the stats from one into the other. Uh, that is not my way. <laughs> I prefer mm. to uh, kind of eyeball the numbers, uh, but also take into account the relative feel of how powerful this creature should be. So uh, probably if you were to take all the creatures and, and add up their gumshoe uh scuffling or uh, in some cases shooting plus their health uh, and look at their armor that probably they're all kind of roughly within the same basket uh, for each kind of level of uh, of challenge that they pose in quick shock but at the end of the day I want to make sure that they, it's about feel as much as it's about uh, the numbers and in general I kind of worry about proposing a conversion system that just works strictly mathematically because that's uh, always going to mess you up or often going to mess you up if you don't also take into account the idea of how powerful a creature is going to uh, feel. Have you had experience uh, uh, I, translating creatures from one edition to another or one setting to another? I mean, obviously, when I wrote Trail of Cthulhu, there was a great deal of adapting the creatures from uh, BRP Call of Cthulhu to Gumshoe Trail of Cthulhu. And much of that was just a matter of, you know, given that an average human being would have X amount of health, that gives you a ratio for health. Once you've got a ratio for health, you can apply that ratio to the other stats. And then you sort of eyeball it as you say, um, I think maybe I, you know, this number makes ghouls a little weak. So I'm going to kick their uh, scuffling up because they should be more dangerous or whatever it is. Also, when I go through and I translate creatures from a game system into whatever the game system is that I'm playing. Often I'll be uh, running a, a game in a system that doesn't actually have uh, a lot of uh, various, uh, a bestiary or a, a bunch of monster manuals. And you have to sort of eyeball those if you really want to bring in a monster from another system. And, and a lot of times that's my sort of go-to is you figure out how would you would translate a person and then apply those same metrics to the creature. And then as I guess you do also go over it for flavor and go over it to make sure that the numbers didn't wind up with something absurd or something that doesn't make the combat any fun. Now I noticed that uh, looking at the trail stats for the Cthulhu creatures, that a lot of them have sort of a combo attack, right? That if it, you know, if it hooks you with it, the, the hunting horror, uh, it'll try and hook you with its tail. And then if it hooks you with its tail, then it can bite you. Um, and that's, yeah. Something that goes uh, right back to D&D, &D, and uh, I don't know uh, to what extent that's a sandy thing that you're carrying over or uh, something that uh, that you particularly dig. I mean, I dig it because it makes the combat more interesting, and I think that we you can see the same thing in 13th Age combat where different die rolls create different kinds of effects. And I think it's more fun if the creature has 
a sort of a, a tactic. But I'm fairly sure that even way back in, in Sandy era, uh, call, there was a thing where, you know, if it hits twice with a claw, then it will bite you type, uh, rules. And, you know, once you see that the first time, then of course, you start imagining, well, what makes sense for this monster and that monster? I could probably, you know, reach down and dig out my old Call of Cthulhu from the floor around me. And uh, I'll bet if I went all the way back, I would find that probably half of those at least are Sandy's original idea and half of them are me riffing on it. And the cool thing about uh, translating a double attack like that into Quick Shock is that uh, Quick Shock will give you either a minor or a major injury, uh, depending on how... Uh, far off your roll you are. And so uh, that naturally lends itself to the idea of, oh, well, if you've got the minor injury, it hit you with its tail, but it didn't quite succeed in dragging you up and biting you. And then uh, if uh, you blew it by a lot, then you get the major injury, which can then be described as the multi-combo attack. So that was something that fit really nicely into this uh, new way of doing things. Another thing uh, also that you can do uh, with Quick Shock is that the injury cards, of course, only apply if you survive. And uh, the way that you uh, die of an injury in Quick Shock is that you take either a third injury card if you're playing in the more difficult horror mode or a fourth injury card if you're playing in the more forgiving occult adventure mode, uh, which means that, uh, in general, the rules tell you that if that happens and the, you die on the spot, then you narrate uh, a logical, horrible death that is even worse than the major injury card because you're dead. That's worse. Yeah. But there are certain creatures for which a particular spectacular form of horrible murder is specified. Uh, for example, the Kamazot, the uh, the death bat of Zapotec lore, uh, which is dis- described yes. as, as having a beheading claw. Um but the problem, of course, in, in general with a creature like that is, well, if it doesn't behead you, <laughs> it's not a beheading claw. It's, you know, an attempted beheading claw. But uh, for that one, then it, it tells you that, you know, if you do die fighting a Kamazots, you faced its beheading claw. And, and then it gives you the uh, particular description of what that would be. Or, you know, the various creatures like the Night Gaunt or perhaps the Hunting Horror who uh, drag you up into the sky and then drop you, well, that's clearly what happened if you took your your final injury card dealing with them. Well, uh, once we have been beheaded with a beheading claw, I think we should maybe take that as yes, a hint. there's no coming back that, from a beheading claw. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's just, you can't trade that card for less beheaded. So perhaps we should trade the whole hut for a different hut on the other side of the music. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Welcome once more to Ken and or Robin Talk to someone else. And today, Ken, that's me, is talking to Chicago game designer, wait for it, Rich Ranallo. 
Uh, Rich, you, of course, left us, deserted us for Washington, D.C., have moved back to the greatest city in the world. And speaking of back, you are back with the, uh, not so much the second edition, but like the sort of the Ziggy Stardust transformation of your original game, Star Children, which came out in when? 2002. 2002. And I saw it then, and at the time I said, I cannot wait for the second edition of this game, which is going to be phenomenal. And you did, in fact, make me wait. But now... It's Velvet Generation is the uh, is the cognomen, and it is kickstarting now. And tell us, Rich, why I liked it in 2002, and perhaps why we're all going to like it even more. So the background of the game, probably the only rock opera-themed game I knew about in 2002. I think a few other yeah. people have hit upon the genre since then. Uh, but uh, just a little bit about the, uh, the the backstory. The Star Children are aliens who uh, learned about rock and roll and fell in love with it. Uh, via radio waves that emanated off of Earth. They decided to come here on something of a pilgrimage to locate Rock and Roll's birthplace. Uh, only it takes them a century to get here, and by the time they do, they find that rock music and free expression have been outlawed by the sinister Ministry of Music, and they are stranded. So they join up with the Earthling members of the underground music resistance and start a revolution. So... As far as why you liked it in 2002, I assume uh, it's an interesting concept. Uh, it was a great high pretty... concept. It was the notion of a game that was about political change that had a mechanic consequence for it. That you, The things that you did in the game created the conditions as opposed to just, oh, no, we kill enough you know, werewolves and suddenly there's no more werewolves and now the world is free of werewolves. It was actually about changing the world, and that's what the game was about as well. And I think mechanically maybe it... Had gotten about what would you say, maybe forty five percent of the way there. Uh, yeah, yeah, forty five percent is 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 a is a nice, possibly generous number. Uh, that is something that we're really kicking to high gear with this with this new one. This is you know sort of inspired by Blades in the Dark. Uh, the idea of like it's a it's a role playing game that you can, for lack of a better term, win. Right. Uh, you are the band that causes the revolution. Right. And we have a session to session campaign mechanic that on one hand is designed to help the GM plan each individual session, you know, decide like what scale of, what scale of oppression the ministry is using against the band this week, right. you know, in this week's episode. And then also how the band can fight back by circulating outlaw art, by just causing public spectacles, and also by just like helping the people who are on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, you fight back by starting a community food co-op as well as by rocking out windows right and stuff. yeah so um, again the the high concept is what i think struck me first and then the fact that you sort of you put put your mechanics where your mouth was uh even then that but the notion of the man who fell to earth role-playing game is just really strong and i think it's it it seems like it should have occurred to somebody but <laughs> you were certainly the first person i ran into who did it uh the notion of a of a game with an ending a game that is geared to not an endless campaign that never resolves. That was part of my thinking behind Knights Black Agents yeah. when I designed that, is that if you're, you know, playing out uh, the Bourne trilogy, at some point you have to have killed all the CIA guys, right? <laughs> the, the CIA has to stop. Um, if you're, uh, in this case, you know, you have to stake the, the lead vampires. And the notion that you play to the revolution, right? You play until the Ministry of, uh, of Music falls. That, I think that really sort of allows you as a designer to focus a lot of stuff, like you said, to uh, say, well, now you're obviously a bigger threat, so the mu- Ministry of Music will bring more big guns after you. Right. They don't call out a drone strike on somebody practicing in their garage. No, right. But when you're when you're filling an arena with illegal rock fans, mm-hmm. uh, they might bring out the, the actual guns on exactly. you. Exactly. But what I like about that is that it creates uh, a story without necessarily pinioning you into, like, a one-act model. That they're so... You can actually have that arc go, and it's not just zero to hero in the course of your own personal progression. I mean, they've all been stories, you know, I got to 20th level. But the world has a story, and it's because your characters are shaping the world that I think that, you know, that's one of the really great advantages that uh, Velvet Generation has. And again, one of the few games that I ever saw that did that was uh, Ray Winninger's Underground, which Mm. also, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not coincidentally, was about... 
discovering that the world was corrupt and horrible and dystopic and using, in in that case, sort of more street anarchy and, and punk elements than uh, Bowie, but the same sort of thing where you have to change, you make a choice. Are you changing yourself or are you changing the world? Yeah, for real. Uh, it probably won't come as a surprise that I bought Underground when we were working on the original one. Right, because, yeah. Uh, because, because it was so great. <laughs> so well, yeah. Yeah, and the, the Zero to Hero arc or, you know, the Endless Campaign thing, I'm being very straightforward. I'm presenting it in terms of like a prestige TV series. Right. Cause that's a, that's a narrative model that's in people's heads now that wasn't there 10 years ago. Although even then prestige TV series are now overstaying their welcome. I mean, yeah. we have all right now thought of the second <laughs> season of something that didn't need 10 episodes, much less a second season. That's, that's right. I'm, I'm going more breaking bad right. as a, as uh, a with an arc, right. arc. Or maybe just, um, like a British, uh, television show that it, it never assumes it's going to be renewed. Like we, yeah, we've told our story. Right. Um, but I, I like that that, that concept is in people's minds when it wasn't there before. Right. It's the most analogous to an RPG campaign thing that we have. Just briefly, is there some, I mean, you were, you were in Chicago when you made Star Children in the first place, right? Uh, the suburbs. The suburbs. I, some people get yes. touchy about that. Right. Yeah. Well, as as an actual Chicagoan, I can afford to be generous. <laughs> and now you're back. Do, do you find that it was a quality of your environment, the quality of being in one of the great music cities, one of the great cities, period, that has that sort of tradition of street culture sort of working against the man that inspired you? And that DC stultified you and nearly destroyed your creativity, not to put words in your mouth. That's, that's pretty accurate. It's not a conscious thing necessarily, but I feel like it's something that you can't avoid just sort of soaking in. You know about the 1968 convention when you're a right. kid. Uh, and then, you know, later on, I actually, uh, met Wayne Kramer from the MC5, the only band that showed up to play there. Right. And I mean, that was post star children but mm-hmm. i was just like but still that is rock and roll revolution exactly right there. and then also you can't get away from like house music scene and stuff like that that is its own form right. of rebellion and then the whole tradition of, of chicago uh blues and chicago jazz which were uh very deliberately uh they were racially charged in a time when that was not even the uh, the black uh establishment didn't want racially charged right. anything yeah much less you know the white establishment <laughs> and and so that that sort of that that vibe i know that i can't go around Chicago without being inspired by the city to think about, I'm, you know, talk about, um, uh, you know, soaking and when I'm designing vampire and I'm walking around Chicago, it's like, wow, talk about your gimme. (laughs) I just feel like that has to play some effect. And and we all are like, well, of course, Monet loved the paint, the haystacks and painted because of the light in Southern France. But I think as designers who are building worlds, the world that we're building them in maybe has some sort of impact. And it's not just a matter of, Oh, the news was sad, so I'm sad. It was like my city has this specific psychic effect on us. The psychogeography of it creates that. Do you think that that's accurate, or am I just insane? I mean, I I think it's definitely there. And and like my like the like I mentioned, I was living in the suburbs when I wrote the original one. We're we're actually like we're taking this tack where we're like a lot of the action takes place in those like sort of older outskirts of a city because right. that's where that's where the man isn't watching mm-hmm. as much but you're still you're still like Just affected like Wayne's by world it. is in Aurora oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Wayne, <laughs> Wayne's world is where I think my uh my uh intro adventure is set in Worth mm-hmm. uh and it involves a road trip to Rockford you know right. just like yeah. these places that are not not household names but uh but that is where you would be able to build up your cred and build up your movement mm-hmm. because they've got surveillance cameras and drones in every street right. in Chicago itself or in New York. And, you know, yeah. uh, so you'd have to be sort of outside of the, so, I mean, we could go all kinds of different directions <laughs> and I know that you would be happy to follow me down those roads, you know, sure. the country versus the city party, the whole <laughs> notion of, um, uh, of the city's the pilgrimage spot, wizard of Oz parallels. But I want to talk specifically about the Kickstarter, um, in which you have a stretch goal to, Pay the writers better, right? Yeah, uh, you know that sounds great. He said for no reason. <laughs> uh, I somehow, somehow, I thought that that would go over well. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone. RPGs, indie RPGs, especially, aren't a gold mine for anybody. But they um, are not. Um, but we, <laughs> narrator, he was completely correct. <laughs> we uh, seeing like the the one Kickstarter where you know lightning strikes and they make hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, whatever, however much, however much a Kickstarter might raise, 
the freelancers who work on that, they're still getting paid the same industry rates that they were before. So we basically decided we want to pay people a fair wage. We also recommend, recognize our budget is going to be pretty limited. Right. So the stretch goal structure works out really well for that because we get to say, hey, if we luck out, Everyone working on the product lucks out too. The and that's sort of the uh, that sort of rock and roll band mentality, right? You know, uh, the good the good kind. Even yeah. even the bass player gets paid more. <laughs> exactly, but yeah, I mean, you know, the editor is that is an important part, and they should get paid more. Are there other um, names attached to the product besides yourself that people might recognize that you want to give a shout out to? Uh, Speaking so, of giving people their credit, <laughs> the core team. In this one is the same as the core team from the last one. Uh, myself and Scott Leeton, co-creators. Scott had done one game before, Star Children, Fairy Meat, Miniatures, Combat, that was one-to-one scale. Right. Uh, but for the rest of us, it was our first project. Ben Murbitz, <laughs> the third member of the team, overseeing, advising uh, in a lot of things. And then, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a number of people have tentatively signed on as, like, freelancers, but a lot of that's going to shake out once we see what the funding right. actually turns out to be. And obviously go check the Kickstarter page and find out. Yes. Because we uh, don't know the list. It's the past when we are. Uh, Indeed. The Kickstarter, as we're speaking right now, is live and will be until July 11th. Fantastic. So I know that when I looked at uh, Star Children, I had nothing but Bowie thoughts. Obviously, uh, uh, he has returned to Mars or Antares or wherever uh, because we are not worthy of him. Is there an artist now who you sort of took as a touchstone for the... For the, for the project, was Bowie actually the touchstone, and or was I just projecting? What's what's uh, what music inspired you? Because again, I wrote Fall of Delta Green, uh, and just poured the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan and Velvet Underground when I couldn't stand the tambourines anymore. But I was purely listening to '60s music, and I think that had some effect as well. Talking about the sort of sensorium that surrounds you, is there a musical touchstone for the project? Uh, so, you you were right. Bowie was the, the primary inspiration, and the primary inspiration for the new one. This project kicked off uh, mm-hmm. more or less when he uh, left us. We're, but we are expanding the musical horizons a bit. Uh, Janelle Monet's career didn't really take off until after the original, so we couldn't factor her in, but she's definitely a, a, a big touchstone right now. Uh, there's been a little bit of a resurgence like neo glam kind of stuff mm-hmm. um you know the the one that i've been listening to pretty much nonstop since i discovered him is Ezra Furman he's uh, also a chicago area native uh who just came out with a new album he swears is not a concept album but kind of is and yeah we're just we're reaching out into the important thing to us is uh you know the capacity of a 22 year old in 2002 to reach beyond his established musical milieu was more limited than it is now. Right. Now I can, uh, Spotify anything I want. It's very easy to track down, you know, go really deep down, down rabbit holes. A lot of the algorithms are good at, uh, recommending things. So, so we're, we're working from a much broader catalog now. Um, you know, and part of that is also just the, the cultural aspect of, the original game being just about basically three white artists uh, and trying to uh, make sure that that's less so the case now is important. We're actually going to this week start releasing our Velvet Generation playlists. We have uh, soundtracks for the two major factions in the, in the, in the game, Uh, Velvet who are pacifist revolutionaries and the blue army who are the hardcore militant. Right. Fantastic. That, that notion of providing, Mm -hmm. I want to say a multimedia experience, but providing the sort of, hey, if you like this, this is the sort of thing that might create that same sort of spirit. There's a game that I've been working on forever, and by working on, I mean have half of a draft and have been ignoring forever, called Casey Jones is Dead. That's set in 1900 at the turn of the century. Uh, and I think that if I ever release it, if I ever do release it, Hal Mangold is right now tearing his hair out. If I ever release it, I want to also put a bunch of public domain train songs from like the Library of Congress or nice, wherever, nice. because that would be the era, that would be the space you would want to be in. See, and I wouldn't have to worry about licensing music right. if I was doing that. Exactly. You know? That's well, you don't have to license if you just say this is my playlist. Yeah. Right. That's, That's the genius of Spotify. So yeah, I, I like that idea, and obviously, um, the lovely and talented James Semple, who does the music for this podcast, has great theme songs for the existing Pelgrane products, which you should all rush right out and listen to again, because I know you've already downloaded them. And listen to them. And speaking of James Semple's theme music, I believe that it is arriving to carry us into the next hut. 
anyway, thanks so much for coming on the show, uh, Rich, and talking to Ken. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, Rich Ronallo, Velvet Generation. I got through the whole podcast segment, didn't say about Velvet Revolution. Handshakes to me. And thanks, everybody. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin... Patreon backer Ian Carlson asks Ken and Robin, how do the two of you go about the process of making each podcast? I know there are digressions, a Google Doc, and someone lands the titular line, but not much more. I'd be fascinated to learn how your proverbial sausage is made. Um, Ian uh, perhaps is alone in that, but too bad, everyone. Ian's a Patreon backer, and Ian gets his question answered because that is the Ken and Robin pledge. Yes. Uh, speaking of Ken and Robin pledges, Robin, uh, I guess our most pledgy pledges, come hell or high water, we'll put the podcast together each week. And then I think my way of doing it is... Robin does all the work and then Ken talks. Maybe you can go into some more detail right. on that. Uh, well, and, uh, and the reason I've, uh, slotted in this question for this episode, of course, is this is episode 299. So Woo! next week will be our, our 300th episode. So I thought, uh, as a, a lead up to that, uh, what better than a, a meta question? So, so first of all, uh, we are talking extemporaneously. Uh, and so, the uh, the episode titles are not written ahead of time uh, for one of us to hit. <laughs> we do, it's not uh, Dying Earth. We don't yes. get uh, uh, character points from using the line. Now, very occasionally, I will I will myself have a line loaded and ready to go. Uh, perhaps a line that I wish to theme a T-shirt around: "See Walrus Revenge." <laughs> but in general, the the way that I pick the episode titles is uh, I listen to the episode afterwards and I make a list of all the. Uh, pithy little uh, uh, phraselets uh, that might uh, make a, a fun episode title, and then uh, I will then uh, pick the best one, sometimes in consultation with my uh, lovely wife, Valerie. Sometimes I will take a, a poll of the players in my game group to see which one they like best, or most of the time I just pick one. And I do try to alternate as well, uh, so that there's a generally a Ken one uh, followed by a Robin one and vice versa, and they cycle. Uh, but uh, very occasionally, the guest in the uh, uh, Ken and Robin talk to somebody else segment gets a, a title in there, and uh, and and then sometimes there's just an obvious one that isn't actually a, a quote from the the show. But to back up a bit, uh, yes, indeed, it's all about a Google Doc, and so uh, I have a, a Google document that is full of possible topics that we could cover uh, any given week. And so uh, on podcast day, we record them on Tuesday, and then the one that we record drops uh, not that Friday, but the Friday after that. But anyway, as part of uh, my podcast prep day, I am going to write up the uh, blog entry that accompanies the post, the one that appears 
uh, in your podcast app of choice, the, the text there, and, uh, and usually also write up the script for the coming week that we're going to do, uh, the next Tuesday. And, uh, I draw, uh, topics from all of the different, uh, possible, uh, choices from all our various segments. And over time, I try to keep a balance of segments within each episode when I'm choosing the segments. There's almost invariably, uh, you will notice that we start um, most of the time with a gaming hut because, of course, that is the, the main topic of the show. And uh, sometimes the Ask Ken and Robin question will also be something that could otherwise go in a gaming hut, so sometimes I'll, I'll double up. I try to pick segments so that they... Uh, balance between uh, uh, participation by Ken and I. So there's certain segments where I do a lot of the talking, for example, <laughs> the one that you're currently listening to, and then uh, lots of them where uh, Ken is the expert on whatever uh, historical or occult or electronic uh, topic. Uh, and then, uh, so I try to make sure that there's uh, uh, at least two where we're at least sharing the segments equally uh, and a maximum of two where I'm kind of interviewing uh, Ken about stuff. So, uh, Ken, you have a, a week's notice uh, when a, a topic comes up that is uh, obviously a Ken topic, whether that's a tradecraft hut or a consulting occultist. And uh, uh, we each do a little bit of research. So you joked about my uh, doing more of the work, but you do more of the research. Yeah, well, I mean... Um, now, a lot of these are already in your vast... A memory bank, but you have to refresh your memory. So when you get a, a topic, uh, you know, let's say that we did a, a history hut on, uh, on Henry VIII, uh, how would you go about, uh, assembling your, uh, your thoughts and facts, uh, to talk about Henry VIII for, uh, 15 minutes? I mean, with, uh, with some of the topics, especially the more elliptonic ones, um, we, you know, I have a book that has a chapter on it and I will go to that and it may not be the last word on the topic, but, you know, just really fast rereading that chapter, that entry, that segment gives me the sort of primer and I can do a little research uh, on my phone or if I get some spare time, some other uh, moment uh, just to add any extra things. Sometimes I've already written a suppressed transmission on it, which makes life a lot easier because all the clever ideas I had way back in 1990, whatever I can just have again. And everyone loves them just as much. Yeah. That thing you always say about Henry the eighth, that thing I always say about Henry the eighth. Um, I will, uh, I will sometimes have, you know, a, a pre-existing uh, body of knowledge, as Robin says, and I don't even have to necessarily uh, do that much research because I find that it's more fun uh, for everyone if I sort of am riffing and bouncing around as opposed to if I'm simply regurgitating uh, something that I just read. For a big topic like Henry VIII, Robin might have just said, what's the deal with Henry VIII? And then I have to find something fun about Henry VIII to talk about, or it might be we were going to talk about the Tudors, um, or we might be going to be saying, Henry VIII, was he just a serial killer who liked turkey legs? What's going on with that? And, you know, then it's all about uh, having your wife killed. And, you know, it's going to be whatever aspect or topic about Henry VIII. But, you know, Wikipedia exists for a reason. It's uh, it's not a terrible first cut, as long as you don't uh, take it as gospel on any topic. But certainly on relatively uncontentious topics like the mid-Tudors, you can probably find as much good stuff there as uh, you can in any other given reference book. And it makes a good handy starter because you're already at your computer and you can think, well, that sounds weird. I wonder if X and start digging around and finding out more stuff if that inspires you. Or often because the, uh, the Wikipedia entries come uh, in, in many cases, they're copied and pasted right from the old Encyclopedia Britannica or the Dictionary of National Biography. They'll have weird little side trails on their own because that's how people used to write encyclopedia entries back in the uh, public domain days of reference works. And so there will be some weird little uh, thing that might catch my eye about Henry VIII, maybe you know, lived in a place that got haunted a hundred years later. And it's like, ah, I wonder what's going on with that. And so it much of it is sort of, even if it's not a topic that I already have a, a potted 15 minutes on, it'll connect up to a topic that I have a potted 15 minutes on. And that uh, sort of adds, I think, to the fun of the show, because anyone can literally, you know, sort of figure out, oh, Catherine of Aragon, whatever. But if something fun or weird is going on with Catherine of Aragon, then that's sort of what I bring to it, as opposed to merely my classically trained voice. Right. And uh, in preparation for those segments, I will do uh, some very broad based uh, research in order to jot down 
uh, dates and a few names, uh, things that, uh, and, and also things that I have trouble pulling off the top of my head, even if it's something that I uh, know, uh, like, for example, when we're doing the uh, film uh, 101 segments, I have written down a list of the films and the years and uh, the names of the directors, and I could uh, pull those from memory, but while I'm pulling something from memory, I'll probably go, uh, and so... Uh, one of the things that we uh, try to do, given the limitations of extemporaneous speech, is you know minimize the us, um, which brings us to another topic that we are often uh, asked about, uh, which is bloopers. Uh, and uh, you notice there that I paused trying to pull the word blooper, but at least I succeeded in leaving only a space in the air uh, rather than, a, than mm-hmm. the dreaded uh. So uh, we're often asked if there are outtakes of the show that we could. Uh, put in a special blooper reel sometime or maybe make available to Patreon backers. And the answer to that question is you don't want that because no, we're not, we're not no leaving any that. gold on the editing room floor yeah. or we're leaving false starts. And, uh, you know, if, if it had taken me just a little longer to come up with the word blooper, uh, you know, that would have gone awry. And, uh, this episode actually we're recording, uh, both of us. I've just come back from a, a conference weekend. I was at the Canadian Writers Summit and Ken was at Origins. Uh, so you may notice a little bit of extra punchiness, but what you won't notice is all of our false starts, which our editor, uh, Rob Borges, kindly snips out for us as he uh, takes the uh, two audio tracks. We each record uh, uh, separately our own isolated tracks and then send them off to our audio editor who puts them together. That's why you don't hear all of the bloops and bleeps that you would hear if we were talking on Skype. Uh, we use uh, Samson Meteor mics. I think that's what you have as well, Ken. Yep. 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 Um, and if you're super interested in tech stuff, we've now gone to a third voice over internet program because both Skype and also Twitch insist on taking re- control over your audio levels. No matter what you try to do with the settings, it's all a hoax now. Uh, Skype used to let you adjust the settings no longer. Um, and so nope. uh, that, and of course, they're trying to adjust to the live experience of people talking to each other. But we need certain levels for the recording for Rob to, to stitch together. So now we're trying Discord as our means of talking to each other. And uh, hopefully that will work and, and drive Rob less crazy and require less adjustment of audio levels from him. Uh, let's see, what else do we need to talk about in terms of... Uh, uh, the uh, I guess there's still more on the mix of topics. Uh, Patreon backers, uh, of course, get uh, priority question asking privileges, and uh, so I try to balance that along with other things. I'm, the episodes still have to be interesting and balanced by topic in other ways. Before we went to the Patreon, basically there was uh, pretty much at most uh, one request. Uh, per episode. Now, quite often you'll have uh, uh, two or three, or sometimes we'll even do an all-request episode in order to satisfy people's answers. I take into account, uh, you know, the, the more generously uh, you donate, the more often your questions will wind up in uh, rotation. That uh, makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but whatever level you're backing at, uh, I will try to get your questions in. Questions that tend to languish in the Google Doc, making me hope that you'll ask another one that I can put in there more easily. Anything that requires us to go off and do a bunch of research, especially if both of us have to do it, uh, is probably not going to happen. So if you, you know, if you're giving us a reading assignment, uh, you know, unless coincidentally, uh, we both have to have read it or are already, uh, have already read it. That's probably not going to wind up in the, in the thing. So, uh, you know, if you can pitch your questions to our existing knowledge bases, uh, you'll be more likely to, uh, wind up, uh, in the, the show. Um, and so let's see. I, I don't know if there's anything else that exciting. I create the, the sort of uh, banner afterwards once I have the title and, uh, sort of try and change the look of those every year or so. And, uh, uh, other than that, we just uh, remain attentive to your, your questions and, and feedback and uh, people are still listening to this crazy show after uh, 299 soon to be 300 episodes. And then I come in and say something pithy at the end. <laughs> exactly. So, so Ken, uh, why don't you take us out of this segment? And then I come in and say something pithy at the end of this segment.
born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? And now it's time for that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where we don't really know where we're even doing, where the categories fit. Are there corners? Are there just cobwebs? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I'm beginning to orient myself yet again, because there, in the corner at the cafe table, the Nordic alien and the gray alien are once more having a kombucha. This time, actually, the Nordic alien has uh, taken up making kefir and wants to talk about it a lot, and I think the gray alien is a little bored, so maybe it will want to listen in harder to what we're saying. Out the window, there's the screaming alien cat on the moors. That tells us that we have entered the Elliptony yet, and this time we are repurposing a question by Lepra Juan, who uh, initially thought we might want to talk about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon in uh, a Ken's Time Machine segment, but since that didn't imply an alternate reality, uh, or at least not an alternate timeline, uh, we decided to move him on over to where he belongs, uh, where we happen to have the gas masks uh, stored uh, here in the Elliptony Hut. So, uh, Mattoon is in Mattoon, Illinois, and the Mad Gasser attacks occurred uh, at the uh, very end of August through to the uh, September 12th in 1944. Uh, Ken, how far would you have to drive from Chicago to get to Mattoon? Uh, Mattoon is 180 miles, uh, uh, let's say, south-southwest of Chicago. It's in what I like to call downstate, uh, meaning everything south of about 100th Street. Um, <laughs> and um, at the time, Mattoon had a population of about 16,000 people. So it was, uh, I think, what we would most of us call a small town, not uh, even particularly... A, a small city, but sort of that small town community feel where everybody knows each other and where stories and gossip would fly back and forth and take on a life of their own in that uniquely small town way, which may be the other half of this story, or maybe not. Right. And the fact that it's 1944, uh, with mm -hmm. the, the war still on and, and fear on the home front, uh, might be yet a, a third segment or perhaps just part of the first segment. So the first a sighting or incident of a man named Urban Rafe on August 31st of 1944. And, uh, and what did he in encounter? Urban Rafe encountered uh, a strange, uh, sweet smell. Uh, he felt nauseated and his wife thought maybe the pilot light had gone out, uh, but she was paralyzed when she tried to get up and discovered she could not leave the bed. So that was the first story, was the sort of uh, first hint of that. Uh, that story was not reported at the time. It came out in later on, uh, examining for everything that might be connected. The first reported story on September 1st, 1944, is the first reported incident in which uh, Mrs. Burt Kearney, or as she was known, Dorothy Ellen Kearney, to her friends, uh, spotted an intruder. And he was a tall, thin man, uh, dressed in dark clothing, wearing a tight cap, um, uh, he may or may not have been seen by Mrs. Burt Kearney, but later witnesses said that he was carrying a flit gun, which at that time uh, would, would have been a common uh, thing that you would have seen for spraying insecticide on your plants in your garden or just wherever you thought you wanted to sp spray insecticide. So if you think of like a bicycle pump, that's basically uh, what it would look like. And it was named Flit because that was the name of a very popular insecticide brand and had become genericized to any kind of an insecticide gun was the Flit gun. So here's this tall, slender, ha ha ha, 
prowler dressed in black, uh, carrying his, um, uh, mysterious weapon and everyone has weird smells, uh, in their house. Uh, she believed that, uh, he had sent an odor into her house. She began to lose feeling in her legs. Bert came home from driving his cab and frightened the prowler away. He, he gave chase. He chased the prowler. Yes. The prowler but, escaped. um, as is the case with the, your, with your slender prowlers, they are fleet of foot perhaps even springy of heel, and he scampered away and was not found uh, later on. Uh, there are a number of similar attacks that are all sort of of the same pattern. Someone smells a cloth maybe that they find on their porch or they see a, a strange figure in, in and around their house. Uh, there are people who say, oh, that happened to uh, Dorothy Ellen. Uh, that happened to us, too. That's the writer house uh, says that they have the same problem, as did another woman whose name doesn't make it into the papers. So... People are beginning to report this to each other and then also to the newspapers. And the newspaper, when it reports the Kearney attack, it says uh, something on the order of uh, Kearney family first victims of the attack. And everyone's like, oh, if they're the first victims, that means there must be new victims coming. And uh, it uh, caused a social panic, as uh, you get with your Salem witch trials or with your uh, satanic um, D&D or whatever else it happens to be. Right. Because if, if you're on the hyper alert for something that smells funny or for an unexplained symptom, uh, guess what? Uh, you're going to smell funny things and, uh, you, uh, may, uh, through anxiety, uh, have, uh, real but, uh, socially induced, uh, symptoms or you might have symptoms of various other, uh, things which you attribute, uh, to a gas attack. But there are also sightings, uh, further sightings of the mysterious prowler. So sometimes the, the incident is uh, a uh, a smell or a spell of bad health, and sometimes it's uh, citing uh, someone who matches the description of, of the gasser or the phantom anesthetist, as he is uh, also uh, sometimes called. Uh, and uh, I think in a couple of instances, do we have both uh, together as well? You mean the name or the... Well, um, the sighting of the prowler and uh, the, the gas symptoms. Yeah, I mean, you, you have the... Um uh, Mrs. Burt Kearney, for example, had, uh, physical symptoms, uh, and smelled something as well as seeing the prowler. So you have, um, not every single case do you have both of them, but you, you have both of them, at least in the Kearney case, which is sort of the, 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 the ground zero for it. Um, and then there are plenty of times where people will see vapor or in one particularly good case, uh, the Mrs. Smiths, Francis and Maxine of 2100 Moultrie Avenue had a series of attacks against them. They saw thin blue vapors and they heard a buzzing sound. So I'm wondering if perhaps there were some Mego showing up in Mattoon or at least visiting the Mrs. Smith. Um, they found, um, what do I want to say? Dubious physical evidence and that it was physical evidence, but it's dubious as to what it was, would be. But on the porch of Mrs. Carl Cordes, where she said that she had a, a burning and swelling and bleeding of the mouth and nausea induced and paralysis in her knees. Uh, Mrs. Cordes said that they found, uh, they, they, they called the cops and the cops found a piece of cloth and a skeleton key and a lipstick tube. And so the sort of impression is that the lipstick tube might have held uh, whatever the chemical was, poured out onto the cloth. Uh, people would smell the cloth and say, yep, that smells like something. And the skeleton key, of course, would be how the gasser would get into your house to gas you with his gun. Although if he's using cloth and tubes, maybe he's more of a phantom chloroformer, at least at Mrs. Cordes's house. Right, because, uh, and this is a tangent, chloroforming used to be a really big uh problem and, and way that people uh, attacked and overcame uh, folks in order to uh, to rob them, and that would be much more still part of the cultural memory. And it was in a lot of movies certainly at the time, too. You have the bad guys yeah. who use chloroform on the on the femme fatale or even sometimes on the hero. Yes, and that, now, of course, in contemporary films, that's a, that's a syringe uh, full of something or a, or a taser, right. uh, which, uh, uh, you know, someday we might have a, a a mad taserer of Tuscaloosa, but uh, so far that hasn't happened. So uh, the FBI gets involved. The police take it seriously for a while. Uh, but after a while, uh, they decide that uh, they're going to uh, try and uh, put the kibosh on this whole thing by telling the media that it wasn't a thing, that it was just, uh, uh, you know, random hysteria. And they do that on September 12th. And there's one more incident on September 13th. And lo and behold, the mad gasser blows town. There are no further incidents or are there dun 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 no there aren't 
No. <laughs> so, there are not. Um, <laughs> Narrator's voice. There are not. So uh, over the years, uh, as you've already suggested, there have been uh, desires to bring the mad gasser, about whom there is nothing overtly um, supernatural or uh, paranormal, uh, into uh, the realm of the paranormal, either by uh, conflating him with Spring Hill Jack or uh, suggesting that he might be an alien of some kind or to, you know, rope him in with the, uh, the more uh, sapient-seeming uh, cryptids. Uh, what do we want to say for making up uh, what is going on in the in the story of the the mad gasser of of Mattoon? How do we turn this into an investigation where the characters get to actually find out what's going on before the veil out uh, is uh, is given to the press by the uh, local police and the FBI? Well, first we should take a brief side trip to Budatort County, uh, Virginia, where in December 1933 and January 1934. There was a similar outbreak of panics, uh, similar symptoms, similar gassing, and similar man seen fleeing. Also, in Budatort County, there was a woman's heel print underneath one of the uh, concerned windows in the case, which reminds us that the last sighting of the Mattoon gasser, uh, Mrs. Bertha Birch described, or Ms. Bertha Birch, I don't know, described the gasser as being a woman dressed as a man, and women's footprints were found there as well. So that's another connection to the Budatort County uh, gassing attacks of uh, the the decade before that. So if we have a every 10 years the gasser will come among you situation that implies that the gas may be not so much something that he shoots you with his gun or whatever, but that that's what preserves his unholy slender man life. And right. he comes or, out of or a, hers, I guess, or hers or theirs. Maybe it's a non-binary yep. gasser. We don't know that. Exactly. We, we don't know what the gasser's pronouns are. We don't. They did not leave their pronouns behind, only their lipstick tube. And so the, uh, the gasser, uh, would emerge from either another dimension or th- from a, a, a chamber somewhere in the, uh, uh, Blue Ridge Mountains or the Appalachians and, and, uh, wander America's small towns until they found the place that needed a good gassing. And whether or not it's, uh, a, a creature that feeds on the fear and panic caused by the gassing or whether the, it has some other agenda, uh, we don't know and we can certainly make it up. I, I'm not sure what Budatort County uh, Virginia and Mattoon, Illinois have in common except nothing in the sense that there's nothing particularly famous or interesting about either of them. So maybe those are dots on some mystical map. They're ley line nexuses. They could be places where, um, uh, there was a, uh, something that happened way back in the, in the early times, uh, some Indians, um, uh, fought some monsters on those spots and the gasser is trying to come and reawaken the, the bad monsters that the good Indians, uh, put down, uh, with their own, um, uh, shamanic powers, um, uh, way back in the ancient times. Or it might just be that there is some time traveling madman wandering around, uh, gassing folks in order to retrieve rare stamps. I mean, I guess as as supernatural explanations go, that's a pretty mundane supernatural explanation. But you would think, well, I just want to get these stamps. I don't want to leave any trace. I'll just go to some small town, <laughs> gas everyone until I find stamps on their mail and then leave. Yes, that would be a new category called undernatural. Undernatural. Yes, there's paranatural, there's supernatural, and there's not that supernatural. Yeah. So the, the implication, if, it, if it's, uh, you know, something actually interesting going on, is that there's uh, some psychic ability being exercised, some sort of uh, drain or something that's being placed on these people, something that the uh, that the gasser is uh, getting from uh, its victims by uh, by putting them under, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, soul drain, psychic vampirism that sort of comes to mind, or uh, you know, just uh, feeding on fear and and hysteria, which is of course a, a common. Uh, genre trope, uh, it's in the esoteric and fear itself, for example. So the, the whole point of the, uh, the gasser might simply be to, uh, feed, uh, this sense. So in fact, the, the mad gasser might be an early esoterist. It could be the, uh, you know, one of the very first original ones. Uh, the, uh, setting of the esoterist, the Ordo Veritatis goes back to the Victorian era. So we might not be the very first one ever, but it could have been an early esoterist plot and it could have left behind uh, traces of fear and some creature that uh, went into hibernation. So it could be that, um, you know, you as the paranormal investigator show up, you're investigating a 
some sort of monster that has come out of its lair to eat people, and you uh, bump off the, the creature fairly quickly, but then you realize that, oh, wait a minute, in, in 1956, uh, in this uh, obscure and bucolic uh, small town, uh, which is as far away from uh, uh, Mattoon as Mattoon is for, uh, uh, what's the name of the county? Oh, oh Budatorp County in Virginia. Budatorp County. And so this is that far away again. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that means there's some sort of creature in a lair that would have been spawned in 68 and another one in uh, in 80 and another, you know, and uh, so you have to go around and uh, and maybe, you know, you check the calendar and, oh, there's a gas attack scheduled for somewhere, so let's go find out who it is. And, uh, you know, it could be the uh, very elderly original gasser or more likely a uh, son or daughter or, or a grandson or granddaughter uh, who uh, is carrying on the, the uh, tradition and could perhaps lead you to some uh, ancient uh, lore of the original Ezoterrorists that uh, could be revealing or or useful. So uh, I think that gives us our uh, scenario in uh, in the Ezoterrorists, and uh, we've already suggested that it could be Mego in Trail. So I think we've uh, we pretty well covered the gaming possibilities of that, and can uh, get out of this particular podcast before someone sneaks up on us and chloroforms us and steals a portion of our souls because we got to be ready tip-top vim and vigor for next week when we'll be doing our 300th episode and you know what that means it means lightning round Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astragown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Get priority access to the very best gas masks alongside such Patreon backers as... Thomas Vallejos. Ariel Celeste. Derek Heimforth. Fred Kish. And John Kingdon. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Aerialite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Now available, Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 